It's the year 2017, and Adrol, one of the most revered companies in the marketing technology space, has to find a way to start diversifying its offerings. Growing to a 300 million run rate on the back of its single retargeting product, the company is foreseeing headwinds with partners and competitors encroaching on its space. The founding team has recognized the need to bring in fresh leadership to shepherd Adrol into its next phase of growth, but the incoming CEO has a lot to think about. He has to launch and grow new offerings at light speed, but he must also not lose sight of the culture and product that made Adrol so successful in the first place. What would you do if you were the CEO of Adrol? Welcome to the Mavens of Change podcast. I'm your host, Kunal Sarda, and our guest today is Toby Gabriner, the CEO of Nextrol, formerly known as the Adrol Group. Toby knows a thing or two about resilience and change. It's a core tenet of his leadership style at Nextrol, where he has led the company's rapid evolution in the face of constant churn in the MarTech and AdTech market. With over two decades of experience in operating high-growth companies, Toby has been at the forefront of positioning Nextrol as a company to watch in the marketing technology sector. During Toby's tenure as CEO, Nextrol has transformed from a single-point solution to a high-growth SaaS company, launched two new business units, and introduced external API to open the company's technology and data to new markets. Toby, so excited to have you here to talk about Nextrol's story of change. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kunal. Really glad to be here. Now, before we get into the story of change of Nextrol, I'd love to start with your own personal story of change. Tell me, Toby, how does someone go from barely graduating high school and spending most of their time in hip-hop clubs to working for Parenting Magazine to becoming the CEO of what was then Adrol? Was it listening to Tupac that inspired you to pursue a career in advertising, or was it something else? The early part of my life was one where there was a lot of exploration and figuring out who I was and where I wanted to go and things like that. And in high school, as as I'm true for a lot, is one of those periods where folks are exploring all sorts of things. And I happened to be born and raised in San Francisco, and there was a lot going on musically, culturally, and things like that. So I got real swept up into that. A little less focus on my studies at the time, but that certainly is not demonstrative of my curiosity and uh, intense love of learning. And quite frankly, my ambition to eventually uh, be successful. So I kind of was wandering in the desert for a while. And then as I got into my late teen years, really started to decide that I wanted to buckle down, went to community college and then Occidental and sort of that really propelled my scholastic career, if you will. The underlying part of that was always that I was a pretty fiercely ambitious person but you know, I was just on my journey to learn and figure out what it is that I was passionate about. I was coming of age in the early 90s. I got out of college and the internet was just basically forming and becoming a core part of the world around us. And in general, technology, having grown up and living in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, was just exploding. And my passion really was around disruptive technology and things of that nature. And I sort of fell into the advertising technology by accident. It wasn't by design. It wasn't like I was like, I want to be an ad guy. I was much more opportunistic. I got connected in coming out of business school with a really early stage 
advertising technology company. And I've been riding that wave for many, many years now as advertising technology has morphed into marketing technology and that's sort of a, some seeds into what we're doing at Nextworld now. I love that origin story. Going way far back to the early days, though, one of the things you've talked about is your parents having a, quote, let the door be open policy when you were in high school. Now, a lot of managers like to say their team is like their children. Do you agree with that analogy? And if so, when do you think, quote, letting the door be open is a good philosophy for managers in running a team? My philosophy is really around more of empowerment. I believe that you hire in great people and you enable them to do great things. How do we empower the edges and give people the ability to go make their own decisions ultimately? Tying back to my growing up, Part of what my parents did is exactly that. And that was why I was kind of wandering around for a while and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. They had expectations of me, but I don't think there was like a ridiculous amount of pressure. And I think they always believed that I would go and eventually find my path. That holds true to how I think about creating a culture of empowerment within companies. So speaking of your philosophies, one of the things I'm most intrigued by is your philosophy that a manager should have, quote, a deep sense of urgency and paranoia. Why do you think this is so important? And when did you develop this as a management philosophy? Yeah, I think when you say it that way, it sounds like living in a state of hysteria. That's not what I mean by that. What I mean by that is, is that I think there's a level at which it's important for leadership to create two things. One is that there should be a sense of urgency. And, you know, we live in fast times, things are moving quickly, change is happening around us all the time. And, you know, we also live in a very competitive technology world is like the barriers to entry are lower. And I know in my career, I'm constantly on the battlegrounds dealing with new competitors all the time. So there needs to be that sense of urgency, not getting complacent, not just having status quo be what permeates into a company. And connected to that is seeing around corners. And that's sort of the paranoia piece of it of where are things potentially going and using both data and experience to help you in terms of judging your decision making about what's upcoming. And that's really what is embedded in that quote. Sorry for that gotcha question about paranoia, Toby. I promise I'll be nicer here on. It's a good one. So let's do a quick recap. From 1999 to 2014, you've led either as president or CEO four services or SaaS companies through periods of hypergrowth. What is the playbook you're starting to see emerge as you go from one company to another in transforming these businesses and setting them up for a path to hypergrowth? Are there any common threads that you have in your head? when Agile comes knocking in 2016? Yeah, I would say that I don't think there's a defined playbook, but I think there are some foundational components that are required and and that are consistent across all of the the companies I've worked at and what I've uh, tried to bring to the table, which is one is around vision and focus, having real clarity and have that clarity well understood throughout the entire company. Um, so that, that's super important. The next is around alignment. And it connects, obviously, to once you, you set a path, it's just making sure that you've got both everybody in an aligned mind state, but also that their activities are all leading towards the goals and and North Stars that are set. And there you start to get into how you structure your goaling, cross-functional team, you know, all sorts of things like that. And then the third is around accountability. You've got to make sure that both as a company, but then in individuals that we are 
setting ourselves and stretching ourselves at times at goals, but that we really are measuring. And if we're not hitting, did we stretch the goal too high or were there some fundamental issues ultimately? Um, So those are sort of the three, I would say, foundational pillars that are consistent. So you've built successful businesses on these three foundational pillars over and over again. And now it's 2016 and you've engaged with AdRoll as an advisor. Tell me, Toby, what is going well for Adril as a business in 2015, 2016? And what is keeping up the founders up at night? Yep. So the company had reached real scale and certainly relative to a lot of the competitors that uh, Adril had had in the early days had uh, really more than lapped them. I mean, there were quite a few that had gone under. So scale tens of thousands of customers on the platform, which was really amazing. Tremendous technology and infrastructure access. I was blown away when I started to peel back the onion on on what the company had built from machine learning to the pure scale, a lot of proprietary technology, really phenomenal culture. I can say without a doubt that of any of the companies I've ever been at, there was an organic nature to the culture at what was then AdRoll that I had never seen before and continued to, to marvel at. And then connected to that was the talent. I mean, there was just a lot of really, really great people that were around the company. And then the last, and certainly not least, is just like an enormous TAM, a really big opportunity for the company on a go-forward basis. It had not reached anywhere near the ceiling. So all of those were really in the positive camp. Where the company had been challenged is, is that it had sort of plateaued. It had it's been well-written. It was a started off and it, it reached real scale on the retargeting and, and the performance advertising point solution. But it was clear that the company was at an inflection point of needing to think about how do we start to expand our relationship with customers, move into other areas and things of that nature. And had been struggling in that particular uh, area of both setting the vision and then, as I was saying before, driving everybody towards that. And so there wasn't a lot of accountability alignment. There was a lot of individual, I don't want to say fight domes because it wasn't like that there was internal strife in that way, but the teams were not all working in sync with each other because there wasn't real clarity about where the company was really headed ultimately. So Toby, you've talked about the infinite TAM that Adril was playing in, but Adril had started to see some fierce competition too, right? In the early days, Adril was doing retargeting on Facebook before Facebook was doing it. You were doing it better than Google. And then Google and Facebook catch up as competitors while being a partner to Adril. Meanwhile, you've got Critio out there courting large enterprises. Now, they always say that it's always risky to build a business on another platform. What kinds of pressure was the fact that AdRoll was a partner and competitor to these large platforms in Facebook and Google at the same time, putting on the day-to-day running of the business? You are correct. Those three were formidable in the overall retargeting sector. Critio had had certainly gone more upmarket. AdRoll had made the decision and part of our mission has always been to democratize marketing and advertising technology. So the company had really focused more on small and mid-size. So we didn't bump into each other too much. But Google and Facebook definitely were interesting because they both had offerings that competed, but also we were connected into those platforms as well. So you're seeing this near infinite time for the business. There are some hefty competitors. We've probably also seen some ability to grow the business throughout executing the competition. But you're an advisor to Agile at this point. 
How did the conversation with the founders progress from being an advisor to coming on as president? Also, was this just the predetermined intermediate step in you eventually taking on the CEO role? That is correct. So I, when I got connected in with AdRoll, I had just come off a, a very successful run where my previous company, Adapt TV, had been acquired by AOL, and I'd spent about 18 months in the integration process, and, and then was taking some time off, and quite frankly, was really trying to determine what type of opportunity I was interested in doing next, and I was doing a fair amount of advising and board work, things of that nature. And Aaron, my predecessor, reached out, and we've had a relationship over the years. I mean, I've known the Adderall group almost since inception. And Aaron got wind that I was in doing advising, and he and I had a conversation, and he was very forthright in articulating some of what I had said earlier about the company had hit a plateau, and he was really looking for someone to help be a thought partner for him. So my initial foray in was, can I help Aaron and the his team, the executive team, start to really think about where the company could go? And within a few months of that, he then asked me if I might be interested in eventually taking over and running the company. Uh, at that time, all those flows that I had laid out for you became very obvious to me. My interest level became fairly high. And I said, yes, I would be willing to leap in and get involved with the company on a go-forward basis. And we did it in a very intentional, orderly way. This was not a Aaron needed to race out the door. He was sort of on his journey to eventually wanting to, to leave the company. But I basically got brought in once we started to get clarity about where we wanted to go with a remit of transformation. And that really became what I have been focused on at the company over the last few years. All right. So, Toby, you see a lot of pros in joining the business and you come on board as president. Two-part question at this point. Number one, what is the plan for the business transformation at this point? Is there a plan? And number two, the idea of transforming AdRoll a 300 million run rate business doesn't sound like a simple task. As managers, we are frequently told not to take on over-aggressive goals, and that it's better to under-promise and over-deliver. Why did you decide to say yes to this plan? What gave you the confidence that any sort of big transformation was possible at AdRoll at that point? Yes. So this is a great question. Let me start with where I made a big mistake. The transformation of the company ended up being a multitude of areas. So one was we needed to really understand the customers that we were going after and how do we get deeper with those customers. And that's what led to the multi-business unit. The other was platform expansion. What does that entail? And also that led to a revenue mix change where we started introducing subscription or SaaS-based component. Another big piece of this knowledge is that we had not been profitable and profitability was really important. So we had to do everything I just described and get to profitability. It was a lot of moving parts. One of the areas that I didn't do a good job of out of the gates was in setting really, really clear expectations with the board. I think that I should have been a lot more intellectually honest that, that this is a big undertaking because we had started to set the vision in motion, but it wasn't 100% set. And given that it wasn't 100% set, it wasn't super clear yet all the things that were needed in order to do that. And so what I did is I bit boxed myself in a bit in terms of our financial plan for that year. And I had to go back fairly quickly and say, hey, uh, 
uh, we're going to need to dial this back a little bit. I need to have some latitude to make some bold moves and um, make the kind of necessary changes and or ramp down certain things. But I had confidence going in that, as I said before, that it had all the ingredients and it also had, this is actually really important, it had the mindset. You know, one of the hardest parts of change management is, is like, if everybody in the company believes that everything is fine uh, and or somehow any changes could impact their fiefdom or what they perceive as their area of ownership, that can be problematic. We did not run into that. I mean, one of the great joys of this whole process has been that what we call our roller population, the employees of, of Admiral, now Nextroll, were very much embracing heading in a new direction. They understood intellectually. I had confidence that we had all the right ingredients. It was just a function of starting down that path and understanding what the trade-offs were going to be, the investments that we would need to make, things of that nature. And that's why, going back to my first point of like, would have set better expectations at the board in the beginning. But once we figured that out, then we were able to take everybody along on the journey in a way that looked like we knew what we were doing at that point. So you take on a plan that is stretched with a giant capital S, and then you refine that a bit. You've walked me up to the line now. It's 2017. You've officially joined Adrol as president, soon to be CEO. You mentioned earlier today that you found that the mindset at Adrol was really great, but I wanted to double click on one thing you've said during another company, All Hands. You said, quote, when I arrived at Adrol, I found urgency, paranoia, and fear of failure missing at the company. We've also learned that this is something you value deeply in a team, the sense of urgency, paranoia. How do you go about fixing this and driving the sense of urgency that you were feeling at Adroll? There's two major aspects. One of the reasons why the company was struggling around that is because there wasn't clarity of direction. So it's hard to have a sense of urgency if you don't have a vision and then define goals against that vision. So I don't think I was up against the mind shift problem. I think there was a desire and people did want to move at a faster velocity. And there was kind of a desire to win by and large across the company. It was just, what are we racing towards? So that was one, which was setting clarity on where we're going, why we're going, and how we're going to get there and how we're going to measure and what the expectations are. And once we had that in, then it became a lot easier to cascade down into what has really become a performance management framework that we have now in the company and a way in which we have an operating cadence where we are really checking in on how we're performing. The other was we sort of overextended ourselves into all these different customer segments and different directions. And we went through a, what I think in retrospect was a really great exercise of we took cross-functional teams together that were responsible for, I think it was five different customer segments. And they had to really go and make a business case for why we should go after that particular customer segment. And they had to present it out to the whole company. It became obvious that small and, and mid-sized direct-to-consumer are sort of bread and butter. We needed to double down on that. And then this account-based marketing B2B opportunity was also one that was really big. And we started to dial down some of we were going way up market and competing against Critio. And, you know, and that was just not an area that was our strength. So we shut that down. So those are some of the exercises we went through to get everybody focused and in the right headspace about where we were going. So in these planning exercises that you're using to drive urgency and to refocus the org, these cross-functional teams bubble up this idea of an account-based marketing SaaS product for B2B marketers. Where do you go from there? 
what does day one of working on this new product look like? Was it a Skunkworks project or did you decide to go all in and dedicate resources to it day one? There had been some Skunkworks-like effort. There was a smaller SWAT team that had been doing some exploration, a small team of five or six that were starting to do some testing and validating with customers. After we had gone through that exercise of these cross-functional teams identifying the opportunities, this obviously was one that had bubbled up. And it's important to note the platform had originally been constructed and focused on small and mid-sized direct-to-consumers. About a quarter of our revenue by the time I had gotten there was from B2B customers. And it was a fast-growing segment that we were doing virtually no effort around at all. And as we delved into that segment Also, this emerging account-based marketing category, the technology assets needed in order to be successful in that that area, it became really clear that this was a big opportunity. We started the business, I think it was 100 people that were in that business unit from day one. We kicked off that business with a couple hundred customers from day one. What startup gets that opportunity where it's like out of the gates, they're doing millions of dollars of revenue, hundreds of customers, and an already built platform, basically. So the team realizes that it's got a head start on this big, massive new opportunity, and you decide it's time to double down on a whole new line of business along with AdRoll. Tell me a bit about how you communicated the strategy of business line expansion to the company. And the reason I ask this question is that a lot of people will often tell you, focus on one thing and do it well. And I'm sure that there were at least a few folks in the organization that were saying that diversification is not in the best interest of the company. And I imagine not everyone was excited about this direction for the business. How did you handle this concern from the team that you may be stretching them too thin and doing too many things at the same time? Yeah, no, it is a really good question. It's been a constant throughout my career. Most often, there's no shortage of opportunities. And being able to say no is probably more important than being able to say yes. One of the biggest challenges I had in coming into the operation was it was a big going concern. We were not profitable. So the balance sheet didn't give us a lot of room to say, hey, we're going to shut this thing down and do this over here and invest over there. So the band that I had to play in was pretty narrow. And so it made it harder to walk away as aggressively to certain things that over time we did ramp down slower than we would have liked to. And that was a fairly consistent message that we would hear, which is, boy, you know, we're still doing a lot of different things. So what we did was, Kunal, we became very focused on compartmentalizing because part of what was happening was people had the perception sometimes that we were doing more than we were because they were getting stretched into lots of different things. So as we started to create much more focused teams, that started to lead to folks feeling like, okay, I'm clear on what I'm supposed to do and I have a team supporting me, I feel good. You know, and there was less angst about the fact that there maybe there was another team over here doing that. Creating that compartmentalization and I would get up every year and say, these are the big themes for the year. And then we would go every quarter and talk about within the big themes for the year, these are the big themes for the quarter. Over the last couple of years, particularly, we've started to narrow and narrow and narrow the number of initiatives that we have going. But that took time. Couldn't be an overnight because there's a lot of moving parts to this company. Yeah, that makes total sense. So regardless of the number of things AdRoll does, one thing though is certain, you must keep building on a speechhead business in ad tech while you grow this new line of business. This must present some interesting communication challenges. I want to play you this clip from a public conversation that you had with Nathan Latka about the new strategy for this business. 
Toby, but last few economics questions, just on the Rollworks product. Obviously, your business is much bigger than just the Rollworks, but this is what you're most excited about. What's churn right now on the product? Have you lost anybody? No, early days on that. We're uh, knock on wood. I do want to call out, while we are very excited about Rollworks, the ad roll business and, and sort of way we've been leaning in on that side, going after, you know, we've rebranded and we're really focused on what we call ambitious or upstart, uh, you know, direct to consumer brands. And I'm sure you've been following um, this explosion of companies. You know, we've really been at the, the nexus of that for a while. And so that's an area that we're very excited about as well. So Nathan Latka says, you must be most excited about the new ABM SaaS product. And you immediately correct him saying, yes, you're building this new line of business, but you've also never been more excited about the core Adro business. I imagine that this isn't the first time that you have had to answer this question and that there must have also been rumblings internally at Adrol about how Adrol was, quote, the old guard and the new SaaS product was the future. How did you make sure your Adrol team didn't feel this way? and that it was moving full steam ahead on its core business while you were working on this diversification? Yeah, it's a, a really great question and intuitive one. You are spot on. There was initially some real angst around that, that this was sort of the new star child and focus of the company. And it took a combination of both messaging and time for people to wrap their head around. And actually, probably a third is just like, it's pretty easy to say, yes, absolutely, AdWorld remains important, but then all the resources go into Rollworks and everybody's like, well, the talk and the walk are not lining up there. So we did and we continue to believe deeply that both of those two business units have uh, huge opportunities in front of them. And I think that became evident that we were making investments in both and that we were celebrating both and that we were hiring in both. We always also talked about that we were two business units, one company. And that manifested itself in the way in which we did company social aspects, the way in which we have our employee resource groups across that. So there was a lot of cross-pollinization where people really did feel that we are one company ultimately. And that, that was also really critical. I think that folks started to really believe. The net of it is that it really required to make sure that we were shining a spotlight on both and that we are making the investments in both. And today, both sides of the aisle, if you will, celebrate with each other, which is, which is really exciting to see. I love this idea of two business units, one company. But the flip side of not letting the core business be like the old guard is not moving fast and hard enough on the new business line. I've personally seen many companies try and fail at business line expansion because people are sitting with their hands under their butts, waiting for the product to get mature enough. And a lot of new ideas end up being dead on arrival because it takes too long for the company to push it to their customers. When you think of these early days of your foray into SaaS for AdRoll, what kinds of things were you doing to make sure your team was feeling prepared and incented enough to lean over skis to grow this new line of business come launch day? Yep. Well, the good news is that there was an intense excitement around the the new offerings that were coming out. So there wasn't a shortage of desire, both on the the sales and marketing side of the house to really lean into those areas. Uh, Because we had, as I said earlier, a unified and ratified, if you will, uh, view of where we were taking the company. The area that we were concerned about was how do you sell both a subscription marketing technology set of offerings with an advertising, can they be sold together? It goes all the way back to the early part of our 
conversation around urgency and paranoia, you know, seeing around corners and trying to get ahead. We spent a lot of time focused on that so that when we actually got to launch day, we were ready. And we had figured out the comp structures and sales pitches and all of that, such that when we did finally launch, we sort of had built that muscle and we were able to just kind of roll right into it. And it was never a major, major hurdle. Got it. So squashing execution risk on the sales and marketing side of selling these two different offerings is obviously critical, which you addressed head on. But one of the other things I've seen companies struggle with in business line expansion is the risk of valuing software and services spent differently, even when a customer is spending dollar for dollar on both. I imagine the two lines of businesses came with very different margins, which I've frequently seen as a point of friction inside the organization in many ways. How did you align the company to talk about and provide the same level of service to customers that presented very different enterprise value to the company? even if they spend the same number of dollars with the company on software services. You are absolutely correct that there was a time where there was internal debates of like, is a SaaS dollar worth, you know, 10 times more than a media dollar, even though the media dollar, by the way, the budgets are way higher, right? What we saw really early on was that when a customer signed on as a SaaS customer, their media spend with us was typically 50% higher. And that really became not just a few points of data, but a consistent theme that was happening with customers. It made it very easy for us to lean in and say, SaaS plus media equals high LTV, which equals higher enterprise value. And everybody got that. (laughs) So we emphasize LTV. And... We were able to finally get folks to understand that the combination of the two and the customer lock-in is what we really need to be focused on. And so that issue has not come up since we had that data set that we were able to publicize out to everyone. So now the new ABM product is off to the races, but then something happens, Toby, in late 2017, early 2018, that made you realize that this new line of business needed to be its own standalone entity with a dedicated team and a new name, Rollworks, distinct from AdRoll. Why did it make sense for Rollworks to be a standalone brand and business unit? So what happened, Kunal, in that journey was two things. One is, is that we realized that while we sell into a marketer in both direct-to-consumer and B2B, that the needs of, of that marketer and the organization, quite frankly, while there are some similarities, they start to become very different. We knew that both the platforms were going to evolve to start to be very different, but the, the messaging and the problem that we solve is nuanced and different in those two different customer segments. And it was very challenging under one brand to tell that comprehensive of a story. It was just, it was too hard. We were competing against companies that were laser focused just on D to C and laser focused just on B to B. And so we really needed to be able to have, I use this figuratively, but like a messaging brand platform to be able to go tell a, a deep story. And it was just too hard to do it under the ad role umbrella. And by the way, we already knew that we were going to have separate business units. So then the question became like, do they need to be branded differently? And we fairly quickly realized that the answer was yes, that we did. And I think without a doubt, it was the right decision. Uh, it, it would have been very difficult to achieve that under the combined everything under the ad roll umbrella. So now it's early 2018 and you've wrapped up your first year of transforming ad roll. What does the after look like? Did it all work? 
what was the most different from when you took on Adril as a president and CEO? By the end of that year, I mean, we are a, a multi-business unit operation, which is very different than when it was just Adril and the entire company is focused on a singular platform, a singular go-to-market motions, et cetera, et cetera. You've got two very distinct operations. Now, there are certainly areas where they have similarities, but they have their own marketing, sales, product design, and engineering operations. And so, as I said before, we're one company, but two different business units. So we now have a model where we've got these two separate standalone P&Ls, but we also have shared services uh, at the end of the day. So, you know, the company is operating very differently by the end of that year than it was in the beginning. Rollworks now has truly become a known entity in the B2B marketing category. And if you see like the latest Forrester ABM Wave, Rollworks is the, the brand and it's sitting almost into the leadership category there. Adroll now is launched into email, on-site product recommendations, our measurement offering. And those are doing really well and we get to celebrate that. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a win to me, Toby. <laughs> With this moment of change behind you though, what do you wish you would have done differently back in 2018? You know, I've been asked that before, and it's tricky. I told you one. One was doing a better job of setting expectations with the board. That had some real ramifications in terms of some of the decisions that got made early on. So that was probably the biggest one. I think that we did a really good job of tackling and getting in front of what I would describe are the potential major issues or hurdles that could have really stunted us uh, at the end of the day. And I'll give you an example. Like one of the areas that a lot of concern around was how was prioritization going to happen with the core technology team? Because if you have two business units that have requests coming in, how are you going to manage it? And we were, everybody was absolutely convinced it was going to be a disaster. But I had a hypothesis, which is that more often than not, there wasn't going to be a collision of priorities and that actually the business units were going to benefit from what each of them was asking of the other. In other words, it would move the velocity in certain offerings or features and functionality. I've made lots of mistakes over the years, but I think I was right on this one that by and large and ended up working out. It wasn't nearly the as catastrophic as everybody was thinking it was going to be. And it actually ended up, as I said, there were parts of it that ended up working really well at the end of the day. Certainly, I got credited to CEO, but our teams leaned in all over the place and did an amazing job bringing all this to life. You're very humble, Toby. I'm sure you're right more often than you're letting on here. We now come to my favorite part of our podcast, which is our rapid fire section. I ask you a series of questions and you answer them in 30 seconds or less. How does that sound? All right, let's do it. All right, let's go. I've been told that you are an introvert. Toby, what is your number one hack for an introverted manager to be effective at leading her team? I think that might be a, a slightly incorrect. I am an introvert that acts like an extrovert. So maybe that's my hack. I think if you were to ask people in the company, they would not say that I, uh, I'm uh, an introvert at all. I try and make sure I make the rounds and connect with as many people as I can and and even force myself into situations that I may not always love doing. You know, I'll give you an example. It's like there are times when I would prefer not to go to a, like, a social happy hour and would rather just go home and be with the family and I might force myself to go do that. But I'll be the first guy who leaves. Love it. So your hack is fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
what were you reading, a book or a blog, that helped you manage this change at the time and that you think is invaluable for managers to read today? I do a lot of reading, both blogs and stuff and also books. But the three that, to me, connect in and actually became uh, core readings for the team and the company overall. So one was Mindset by Carol Dweck that you know is all about like growth mindset. And very early in my tenure, I started beating the drums on that and the executive team all read that. And we still, to this day, as a company, talk about growth mindset being important. The second is Multipliers. It is a really great book about leaders and for me encapsulates my philosophy around leadership. And the third is, is a relatively more recent, but I think a really important one is a book called Brave New Work by Aaron Dignan that is all about really changing the operating system of a company. So it's about how do you get empowerment at the edges and really allow your company to be a lot more agile and fast moving. Toby, what do you see managers underestimate most frequently as the most difficult aspect of managing change? Uh, People. I think in general, understanding the mindset of folks and being able to tap into their motivations and fears and really connecting the dots there is super critical. Because if you don't understand that, it's really hard. You can get resistance or misunderstandings of things of that nature. So I think it really starts with understanding the psychology of folks. And as a leader, you spend an awful lot of time context switching. You know, I go from meeting, you know, my CTO who has a certain mindset, as you can imagine, to my head of sales, to head of customer service, to CFO, to, you know, frontline account manager. And they're all very different, dealing with different things. And as a leader, you have to be able to context switch, understand what their challenges and issues and motivators are. And that's true when you're trying to help get everybody to go in a certain direction. Yeah, you got to be a really high functioning schizophrenic. Exactly. Um, And then my last question, Toby, what is your biggest piece of advice to a manager listening to this podcast who may be facing a seemingly unattainable plan or a large expectation of change, but may not have the authority or influence that you had as a CEO? So I'm going to answer this by telling a quick story, if you don't mind. When I got out of college, I mentioned it was right in the throes of the technology internet explosion. And my first job out of college was actually at a nonprofit, Jewish Family and Children's Services, where I was like a program manager. Now, mind you, this is back in the day, and we had lots of clients, seniors who were clients, and they were all managed in manila folders. This was before databases were a thing. And I went to the executive director of the operation, who happened to also be my boss, and I said to her, Amy, I think we should digitize all of our and manage our clients in a digital way. It'll be a lot faster, easier. You know, I went through all the benefits. And mind you, this is back in the day when databases and systems to manage clients were not widely used, particularly in nonprofit. And I said, can I have spend 30% of my time on that? I think it'll be really transformative. And she said, yes. And you know, I'd never programmed anything. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But I stayed up nights. I did a ton of work. Long story short, as I built this system, it was kind of kludged together. It wasn't the most elegant system in the world, but it worked. And it really did have the impact of transforming 
the way in which that we now were managing client records. And so the reason why I tell that story is is that if you've got an idea about something that can be transformative and you can find a a manager or a leader or somebody who will give you some leeway, some time to go do that, and you can sort of prove this out, it could have a profound impact on the way in which the whole company uh, operates. So that, that's my best advice. I don't know if it's the best advice, but that's a story from my own career that seemed to have worked. That sounds like great advice to me. Be willing to take on high risk, high upside projects and have a manager who is willing to let you run wild and free. I've learned so much from you today, Toby. It was a real honor having you on the show and learning from your experiences at NextRoll. Thanks for making the time. Thank you, Kanal. It was my pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. That was the incredible Toby Gabner talking about his story of change at AdRoll. Thanks for tuning in to the Mavens of Change podcast. This episode was brought to you by Aria. Aria brings science to the design, management, and measurement of workforce incentives that move the needle for businesses. Visit ariaworks.com to learn more. 